0: PTJ Podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by
1: Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practice since
0: 1985. Eclipse is a comprehensive all-in-one system that handles your billing, scheduling, and clinical documentation. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call one 800 Welcome to the PTJ podcast, Reducing Heterogeneity in Knee Osteoarthritis, A Quest to Find Meaningful Phenotypes. In this discussion, moderator and PTJ Deputy Editor, Dr. Dan Riddle talks with Dr. Andrew Kittleson and Dr. Eust Decker about a hot topic in healthcare generally and physical therapy specifically. Dr. Kittleson was co-author of the 2014 Perspective titled Future Directions in Painful Knee Osteoarthritis, Harnessing Complexity in a Heterogeneous Population. And in recent research, Dr. Decker has used validated phenotypes to tailor interventions. And now, our moderator.
2: My name is Dan Riddle, and I am Deputy Editor of the Physical Therapy Journal and Professor in the Departments of Physical Therapy, Orthopedic Surgery, and Rheumatology at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. I want to introduce the topic that we're going to discuss today, The title of the paper published in Physical Therapy, in fact, in the March 2014 issue, we had a paper entitled Future Directions in Painful Knee Osteoarthritis, Harnessing Complexity in a Heterogeneous Population. This paper was written by Doctors Kittleson, George, Malouf, and Stevens Lapsley. We think this paper has substantial amount of potential impact not only in physical therapy circles, but in the treatment of patients with NeoA generally. This paper addresses a very important issue in PT practice, and that is, what is the optimal approach for identifying meaningful subgroups, AKA phenotypes, in patients with knee This topic of phenotyping has been a very hot one in medicine generally, and in physical therapy more specifically. and a large number of papers, have been published on this topic primarily in low back pain over the last few decades. And now we're seeing this interest in identifying phenotypes or homogeneous subgroups applied to other areas, particularly areas that relate to chronic pain. If I can take just a moment now, we'll just define phenotypes for our audience. Phenotypes can be thought of as homogeneous subgroups of patients with similar measurable or observable features from clinical exam findings or imaging features or blood tests, self-report forms, types of information that we can visibly observe or assess. An important distinction about phenotype is it's different from the concept of genotype, which genotype simply is the genetically driven information that can guide indications of different subgroups as well. But we're talking about phenotypes in this uh, discussion today, and the paper by Kittleson and colleagues is an initial attempt to describe what some of these Neo-OA pain phenotypes might look like. So what I would like to do is introduce our participants for this discussion today. We're very excited to have the lead author of this paper, Dr. Andrew Kittleson, who's a physical therapist and doctoral student in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Colorado at Denver and he's with us to discuss this issue. So Andy, please say hello.
1: Hi, yeah, thanks Dan, happy to be here.
2: Great. We also have an internationally known knee osteoarthritis researcher with us. Dr. Joost Decker is a health psychologist and professor of allied healthcare at the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine and the Department of Psychiatry at VU University Medical Center, Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Joost, welcome to the podcast.
3: Yes, hello, this is me. I look forward to our discussion.
2: Very good. Thank you. So let me briefly describe the summary of the format for today's podcast. We're going to be structuring this podcast as a discussion, and we're going to keep this as interactive as possible. I'll pose a question to start out, and both Andy and Yust will respond, and we will then allow the discussion to flow in whatever direction we take it with the major premise being that we want to discuss the topic of phenotype and how phenotyping painful NEOA can and should inform clinical practice. We have the luxury of discussing a very interesting and important topic in PT today and in clinical medicine generally, so I look forward to a lively discussion. After we discuss a few issues, we will then end the discussion with brief summary statements by each of our participants. So without further ado, let me begin, and Andrew, I will go ahead and ask why you and your colleagues initially sought out to write this paper. We found this to be a a very well-written theoretical model paper that addresses a very important issue for a very substantial number of patients with painful knee OA. So what led you and your team to write the paper?
1: Well, thanks, Dan. I'm really glad that the paper has been well-received. I think one of the main things that interests me is almost a philosophical question. What is knee osteoarthritis and what does it mean when we tell our patients you have knee osteoarthritis? And what I've come to believe is that the diagnosis really exists as an attempt to describe a clinical observation. In other words, the painful or bothersome knee joint that seems to present in a certain way Mostly we see this in older adults. Mostly, more often times, it seems to present with some bony changes of the joint, maybe enlargement of the bones or a change in alignment of the joint. And most often there's an absence of obvious signs of inflammation. And really, I would say for centuries, this clinical picture has been recognized. However, within the last 50 to 100 years, our diagnostic criteria have revolved more and more around some specific joint features, mostly that we see on an x-ray, so things like thinning of the articular cartilage or the formation of osteophytes. And as it turns out, these sort of specific joint features don't correlate as well as we would like with the clinical picture with the pain or the bothersomeness of, of the knee. So in fact, many people have signs of radiographic osteoarthritis, but don't seem to have too much knee pain. And on the flip side, many people have knee pain, but don't really have obvious signs of osteoarthritis on an X-ray. So I do think that our diagnosis, osteoarthritis, has sort of undergone this game of telephone over the years, whereby our criteria now have somewhat questionable specificity to the clinical condition we would like to describe so what we tried to do in our paper was to say well what if we took a step back and thought of all the things that might be contributing to this clinical picture you know certainly we would want to include our knee measures and our idea of a knee pathology in in that discussion but also we probably want to include things that at least on the face of it, don't really seem to be too knee-specific, things like psychological factors that can really influence how people perceive and, and respond to pain, as well as perhaps some changes in the physiology of the sensory system that could lead to sensitization to pain or augmentation of an experience of pain.
2: Very good. Thank you. That was a very nice summary that hopefully our readers will have an opportunity to read this paper, but this will give them a good start. You've done some work on this phenotyping issue in NeoA, and I would like to hear your take now on Andy and his team's paper and how it fits in this whole area of inquiry into NeoA research. What's your take?
3: I think it's very important uh, to try to identify phenotypes, and I think Andrew's paper in that respect is a real important contribution, and I think it also identifies three important potential mechanisms or areas of mechanisms. Those are very important uh, contributions, I think. What I'm a bit worried about, or what I did not like so much, was the very strong emphasis on pain. Because when I first read the paper, I thought many there are many patients who come in with not so much, uh, pain is not the driving force there. Recently there have been, I'm aware, of at least three cohort studies where they've shown that a large group of patients with osteoarthritis have rather low level of pain and keep at that low level of pain for many years. So I think there is a substantial group of patients who have a disease process going on, but without translating that into pain during the first years. I'm not so convinced that this emphasis on pain is very productive. And I think you miss a very large group of patients there. So I'm positive about the paper. It brings a lot of good things. But I'm also critical on this emphasis on pain.
1: I completely agree that functional limitations, or if you want to frame it like that, or difficulty with things, functioning, societal participation, that are separate from pain, are a very important part of the clinical picture. And one thing we should try to understand as we understand what maybe are different phenotypes of pain is how those categories, if you will, relate to limitations in function. What it sort of comes down to for me is, again, what are we calling, what what do we want to label as knee osteoarthritis and to the extent to which functional deficits are driving this clinical picture, I think those should be a big part of the conversation. But perhaps fair to say that many people will seek care primarily in response to an increase or change in pain. Maybe it's pain with different functional activities or that are limiting participation in some way but yet pain does seem to be a major driver of that clinical episode. So in that sense, it makes sense to anchor our understanding of what is knee osteoarthritis, at least somewhat, around pain as a priority.
3: I agree that pain is probably a driving force in to see a physical therapist or to see a doctor. But to understand osteoarthritis and different subgroups or different phenotypes of osteoarthritis. I think there, if you focus only on uh, patients with pain, you miss out probably one-third or maybe half of the patients. And from a scientific point of view and also from the point of view of prevention, I think you get a much richer perspective if you don't focus on pain. But look at different processes going on. For example, We've seen patients, and that was also one of the things which brought us to study phenotypes, patients who have been farmers for all their life, who have very degenerated joints, but don't have so much pain. And only when the pain becomes, after many years, they start to complain about pain. But there has been a disease process Going on for many, many, many years, apparently, either without pain or without them complaining about pain
2: right. so. So I think this is a very interesting part of the discussion, and it gets to the heart of whether this theoretical model that you've presented andy whether it's and even whether its intent is one of comprehensiveness or whether it is its intent is strict focus on clinically important NEOA, that is NEOA that drives people to seek care, and I think what Yust is describing there, at least to me, is that if you consider it in its full depth and breadth, we know that it's a highly prevalent disorder, and we know that it takes years to evolve. And we know that there's a great number of people who have an who are living in the community and are fully functioning, or at least close to fully functioning. And so I wonder if you might comment on the scope of the population that your theoretical model might actually apply to.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. And when I think about it, I do think it's difficult to separate the symptoms within a patient or the clinical findings, whether they be joint-specific in nature or functional or or specific to pain, from the actual act of care-seeking, that's an important thing that influences how patients present to us when we see them in the clinic, is the fact that they've, at that point, made a decision to seek care for whatever reason. And so I would say that when I think about it, I tend to think about it from that perspective of how do we address what's going on in this clinical phenomenon that's not to diminish the importance of a separate but related question of like should we be trying to screen for things in the community or identifying people in a preclinical state in order to make advances in preventing the clinical episode or just improve in improving health you know generally but I would say that our paper and how we think about it from a pain standpoint is very closely linked to this
2: idea of healthcare seeking as a result of pain or symptoms. Right. And and I think this segues very nicely, this discussion segues very nicely into the really the complexity of phenotype identification and the fact that phenotypes or these different subgroups may look different depending on the purpose of phenotyping. So one may want a phenotype for the sake of prevention. And this gets at that 50 to 60% of people with neoA who don't seek care who are probably in a process of progression that could be altered if we had interventions to slow the progression, for example. So a prevention phenotype process might look different than, for example, an intervention-based phenotype grouping in which the intervention might be more geared towards individuals who are care-seeking versus a diagnosis phenotype in which we're interested in really defining a phenotype for the sake of grouping patients in a diagnostic kind of framework versus a prognostic phenotype in which we're more interested in predicting the rate at which people are going to get worse or get better. So all of these phenotypes really have different characteristics. They may end up looking differently from each other. And so that sort of takes me, Andy, to the question for you about your paper and where you see this theoretical model fitting in this regard because we do think that uh, phenotypes likely will look different depending on the purpose for which the phenotypes are developed. So could you comment on that?
1: I think we're very much in the early stages of puzzling this out. The OS group has done a lot of great work on this, and we're trying to do a little bit of work along these lines as well. But the way I think of it, I think, is mostly from a diagnostic Perspective. In other words, I am interested in just sort of this idea of what are we labeling people with when we label them with knee osteoarthritis. However, I do think that like the link between diagnosis and treatment or healthcare decisions in general is a pretty close relationship. At least in physical therapy, we're pretty comfortable with a tight relationship between diagnosis and decisions about healthcare treatment. If you want to look at just the nature of a physical therapy diagnosis, it tends to be sort of a functional diagnosis. We might say a patient has lower extremity weakness, which, you know, is leading to a difficulty in sit-to-stand transfers or something of this nature. And so the treatment then would sort of logically flow from the diagnosis of weakness, a treatment of strengthening would logically flow from that. And I think that if we develop our diagnostic understanding around things that are perhaps more relevant to the clinical phenomenon, then again, you know, our understanding of prognosis and treatment will sort of organically flow from that or more intuitively flow from that. So, you know, if we just conceptualize knee osteoarthritis as a joint or maybe even specific joint tissue disease, which I know that we, we don't think of it in that way, but if we were to, then the idea of adopting a cognitive behavioral approach to treatment, you know, is you almost require a separate intellectual framework to kind of adopt that treatment approach for a joint disease. Whereas if we conceptualize knee osteoarthritis as a clinical picture that's driven in large part by pain, which can be heavily influenced by psychological factors like catastrophizing. Or a depression, then adopting a cognitive behavioral approach, sort of, or treatment, sort of, logically flows from that structure.
2: What's your take on that issue of different purposes for phenotypes and how it might affect the phenotyping identification?
3: I fully agree on that. I think this also this discussion clarifies my different position in this discuss, discussion. Comes partly from. Our perspective was not prognostic or treatment kind of perspective. We were more, if you want, looking at from an etiological point of view, what kind of endpoints do you see if looking at accepting different trajectories developing towards a clinical state, what kind of trajectories can you see there, what kind of trajectories are likely. And our work on the osteoarthritis initiative was more this etiological kind of approach, etiological kind of background for identifying phenotypes. So that's why we didn't prioritize pain. And, well, we found a group with strong muscles, for example, and we found a group with severe radiological uh, osteoarthritis. We found an obese group, and we found a depressive mood group. And I think this discussion clarifies also that our take on identifying phenotypes is different from uh, what Andrew tried to do in his paper.
2: And Andy, I think it would be helpful for you to discuss a bit more how you see the theoretical model you presented fitting into one or more of these phenotype purposes, if you will, because at the end of your paper you talk about the potential utility of the information for diagnosis, for prognosis, and for intervention. And the traditional history with phenotype design is that phenotypes are typically, and I'm not saying this is always the case, but typically are designed to either help in prognosis, to either help in diagnosis slash etiology, or to help in intervention-based decisions and the structure may therefore vary depending on the purpose for which the phenotype system is developed. So that was a piece that I think could well be. I walked home just sort of concluding from your paper that your theoretical model is in the early formative stages and is not quite ready to commit to one or more of these, or it may be that you're suggesting this phenotype system that may actually apply to all three equally. So if you could just elaborate on that a bit more.
1: Yeah, and I guess where I struggle in committing to, to one or the other is, I think, because we are sort of in an early stage of understanding the ideology of different phenotypes, uh, as just mentioned, and so it's difficult to say, for example, well, this certain phenotype dictates a certain treatment strategy until we know what the characteristics of that are. So one possibility is that we've got a lot of great treatment options out there currently that we might improve the effect size if we were to target them to a specific phenotype. Once we do a bit of work to describe what the heterogeneity in knee osteoarthritis looks like and perhaps what some different phenotypes look like, then we may find, oh, one of those is a really nice fit for some of the treatment options that we currently have available. Conversely, we might find that there's a phenotype that really needs some thought put into it in terms of maybe we need to design a new intervention approach for a certain group. And I think it's it's a possibility that there are groups out there that have combinations, certainly of characteristics, perhaps elevated Involvement of psychological factors like depression, in addition to other health comorbidities um, obesity, systemic inflammation, and it might be that we that it's worth spending some time thinking about well what what should we how should we package an intervention approach for that group so I think thinking about it from a diagnostic standpoint up front and sort of more descriptive in nature then down the road, that would have an opportunity to apply to decisions about treatment or maybe influence our ideas of prognosis for one phenotype or another. I'm not sure if that quite answers your question. I I I managed to remain noncommittal. That was my goal. Well,
2: it's tricky because this becomes a bit of a circular argument in terms of, you know, we have all these several purposes of what phenotypes can accomplish for us. They can, and just to summarize, Phenotypes can assist us in preventive decisions, who's best for treating for prevention, who's not. Etiological slash diagnostic phenotypes can be developed. Prognostic phenotypes obviously can be developed, and intervention-based phenotypes can be developed. And the question is, which one, if any, should come first? Or is there a progression in how these different purposes for phenotypes can be developed, And I don't think the three of us are going to answer that question today, but I do want our listeners to really think about the complexities of phenotypes and how they can really serve different purposes, and the structures may differ depending on the purpose.
1: I guess what I would also say is that one of the main reasons you would want to look for phenotypes is with the hypothesis that targeted treatment approaches are going to be more effective than applying just a one-size-fits-all approach to this heterogeneous population Uh, and so it seems premature to talk about prognosis until you do that preliminary work because ideally if it works out then we're gonna change our treatment approaches and we're going to have better prognosis across the board you know once we sort of realize how to target our treatments
3: I think all these different purposes of phenotypes they are in a way separate but they're not that contradictory we are using our etiological diagnostic phenotypes to try to develop treatment approaches. And For example, in the group with strong emphasis on depressive mood, etc., obviously, you need to do something there, or most likely, you need to do something there related to depression, not only exercise, but also something related to depression. while We also have this strong muscle phenotype. Their muscle strengthening is not very likely to be effective. It's much more, maybe some relaxation, maybe some pacing of activities, etc., which could be helpful. So these are just two examples of how you can use these etiological slash diagnostic obtained phenotypes also to guide treatment, I think.
2: I think that's very helpful. That's a nice sort of summary of where we've gone from quite complex to sort of boiling it down into a more systematic way of thinking about this. And Andy, I think I got you to commit, didn't I? Did you? <laughs> I think you did. I think you just said that the treatment-based phenotypic classification may be the highest priority.
1: I, 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 you can blame my, my PT training for that.
2: I'd like to segue a little bit to uh, another topic now that both of you have addressed in some of your most recent work. And I'm going to quote a, uh, a David Felsen paper from 2010 in osteoarthritis and cartilage. And this is one thing that Felson said about phenotypes that I'd like for us to talk a little bit about now. And this is a quote, once subtypes or phenotypes have been hypothesized or identified, it is challenging to confirm them. Confirmation in independent studies is absolutely critical. Ioannidis and colleagues working in the genetics field has noticed that over 90% of initial reports of genetic associations are not confirmed in subsequent studies. This is also likely to be the case for proposed phenotypes in NeoA. The initial finding of a subtype is often exciting but confirming that subtype in large, more definitive studies is often extremely challenging. Jost, I know you've published a couple of papers now looking at not only deriving a phenotype, but then validating it on an independent sample. And I wonder if you might share some of that experience with the listener.
3: Yes, we were lucky, I think. <laughs> in the osteocytes initiative, we identified five phenotypes, and then uh, we replicated that study uh, using somewhat different measures, but in an independent sample, our own Amsterdam sample. And we found more or less the same five phenotypes. There were some differences, but those were really minor differences. What David Felson said, uh, yes, there is a high risk that you won't identify the same phenotypes, that you won't be able to replicate it. But, well, we were lucky and we... <laughs> we did find the same, more or less the same phenotypes. So
2: and, that's and, promising. And where, yes, it is. And where is this work now taking you, Used.
3: We are using these phenotypes now to try to develop treatment programs with different emphasis, so exercise therapy in or out, something psychological in or out, in the obese patient's uh, emphasis on diet, et cetera, in or out. We're trying to develop that kind of tailored treatment approaches, and we will do a pilot study with that now. Uh, that's where we are going.
2: Very good. And Andy, I believe you've recently published a paper on a, a development of a phenotype system. Can you share it with the readers?
3: Yeah,
1: and so it's published online now at Arthritis Care and Research, so it's just now out, but we um, did a latent class analysis, which is a type of subgrouping analytical technique to look for subgroups, again using data from the Osteoarthritis Initiative, so large publicly available data set. And we used a different combination of variables from what Yost and his group have used, and we came up with different group structure in the end as a result, just to describe a couple of the main differences. We included a comorbidity measure in our analysis, the Charleston Comorbidity Index that basically measures the severity of other comorbid health conditions in people. And we also included some measures of joint area tenderness on physical examination. With the thought process that these might align with some of our proposed factors in relating to pain, we also included psychological factors like depression and catastrophizing. And we found a group that was, seemed to be primarily characterized by psychological distress. This was about 10% of our population that had elevated levels of depression. And then we found another group that was about 5% or so of the population that was really seemed to be driven by these higher levels of comorbidity or more severe comorbidities. And then we found a group that was largely characterized by higher rates of joint area tenderness on physical examination. And then we also found a group that was very mild across the board in terms of severity of multiple factors. This aligns with, I think, with Yost's work as well. In the osteoarthritis initiative study, there's a lot of people that just, because of the way the study was designed to look at the development of osteoarthritis, there's a lot of people in the data set that don't have very severe disease.
2: And sort of stay that way for a long time. Right, yeah. Yeah. So where do you plan on taking this work, Andy?
1: Yeah, so right now we are also doing our own data collection. Um, it's sort of similar to the approach that Yos described where we're we're hoping to, it's almost it's a, sort of a confirmatory approach I suppose, where we have now a hypothesized way that structure might fall out. We're doing our own data collection. We've completed it, and now we're entering into our analysis phase to see whether we get the same phenotype structure emerging. And so we've included a a variety of measures in this data collection along the lines of our proposed domains that we proposed in the the paper we're discussing, the initial paper we're discussing. So things like severity of osteoarthritis on an X-ray, we look at alignment of the joint. We look at strength of the quadriceps and hamstrings. And then we look at a variety of factors that aren't necessarily knee-specific, so things like catastrophizing, coping strategies, depression, and and a variety of those measures, as well as we have measures of inflammation in our data collection, as well as we have measures of pain physiology, uh, looking at quantitative sensory tests to help us rule in or rule out sensitization of the nociceptive system. So that's in process right now and, and we'll look to see what how our results there with some similar but also some different measures align with what we've done but also with stuff that other folks like Yoast group have done.
2: And is is that a, a care seeking sample, Andy, or is that a more of a community based sample, the, this So it, it is
1: it is a care seeking sample.
2: Yeah.
1: Um so we I'm interested to see how that aligns with our other analyses because the vast majority of people in these public databases, at least in the Osteoarthritis Initiative database, don't seek health care actively for arthritis. Right, right.
2: Very good. Well,
3: uh, I. Can I make a sure, comment please. On, because what you told, I have not seen that paper yet, but uh, you told that you included comorbidity uh, as uh, one of the variables in this. And I think uh, we have not done that in our subgroup and uh, in our phenotype analysis, but we are emphasizing comorbidity very, very much in our clinical work right now. And I think that is really um, a neglected factor that people have also cardiac disease or also diabetes or COPD, etc. And that has a major impact on how treatment should be given. So I think it's very exciting that you included comorbidity in your analysis and found a subgroup that uh, was characterized by comorbidity.
1: I agree with you. I've actually kind of come around to the opinion that it's more and more important. And so our discussion of comorbidity status in our theory paper was fairly minimal. And then mm-hmm. through my own observations and some analyses we've done and, and just, you know, reading more about it, I completely agree with you. I think it's not common for osteoarthritis to occur totally in isolation. And it's probably important to recognize the other things that are co-traveling with that, with the osteoarthritis diagnosis. But I was actually curious to hear your thoughts on that group, if you will, that seems to be driven by elevated comorbidities. And one of the things I hypothesize is that there might be sort of an elevated systemic inflammation that's sort of a common underlying feature of osteoarthritis, as well as multiple other health comorbidities, and I know you've done some work along those lines, Yost, so I was curious to get your take on whether you think some kind of a strategy to target inflammation is perhaps a worthwhile priority.
3: Well, we have indeed done uh, quite some work on uh, comorbidity What we've done is adapting exercise therapy given the presence of another disease. So you're right that there might be inflammatory component in it which causes osteoarthritis, which causes cardiac disease, etc. But that is not so much our approach. Our approach has been that if you have cardiac disease, you need to take some kind of precautions and you need to adapt exercise for the osteoarthritic knee. Same if you have osteoarthritis in your knee and also diabetes, exercise has to be adapted. So what we have done is develop a protocol with a lot of clinical reasoning in it on how to adapt exercise to, if the patient comes in with knee osteoarthritis, but also comorbidity, how to adapt the exercise for the knee to the presence of comorbidity, And we've tested that in a trial, and we have very positive, very favorable outcomes there.
1: I think that's a brilliant approach, yeah.
2: I really appreciate both of you covering such a large depth and breadth of content in the area of phenotypes and NEOA, and I think it's time we wrap this up, and I would like for each of you just to take a minute or two and summarize for us what you think some of the key points are that our readers should should walk away from from this uh, from this podcast. Andy, you want to give it a start?
1: I think we're all in agreement that knee osteoarthritis is a heterogeneous thing and there's likely to be multiple subtypes if you want to look at it that way or phenotypes um within knee osteoarthritis. I think there we ha- might have some disagreement about for what purpose and exactly how we should look at defining phenotypes. But we all are in agreement that it's likely that phenotypes exist, and considering the clinical phenotype is probably important to our clinical decision-making. What I would also say, I guess, is that, and this is based off of my impression of our discussion, but also my reading of Yoast's work and my own analyses, is that it's likely that for people with knee osteoarthritis, who are seeking care, there's probably more than just the knee involved. And it's likely that especially for people with higher levels of pain or greater difficulty with function, that it would be very unlikely for it just to be a knee problem at that point. The things that would rise to the surface in examining a patient like that as probably important to the clinical picture are things like psychological factors, depression or catastrophizing, or perhaps these other health comorbidities. So those are sort of the two take home messages for me in terms of factors in addition to the knee joint that could perhaps guide our decision making. What's going on in the psychological domain and then what's going on with other health conditions, obesity or cardiovascular disease or diabetes. So those would be the two things that I think are important to consider in addition to the knee joint when we're evaluating and treating patients.
2: Thank you, Andy. And and Joost?
3: I think for me the two most important points are that indeed these uh, phenotypes, they differ uh, depending on the approach you take and depending on the purpose of the phenotype. Our approach was more diagnostic slash etiological kind of approach. For that reason, we did not emphasize pain so much, but still we're using our own phenotypes to develop treatment programs. So, in a way, even if you take one approach to develop the phenotype, you can also use it for another approach, I think. The second point is that I fully agree that you need to add diet, you need to add psychological issues, you need to add other treatment components to exercise therapy depending on the phenotype which is being presented. And In that respect, I think I really liked the study on comorbidity being a separate group. Patient with comorbidity being a separate group, I think that is very, very important for the future.
2: Very good. Thank you very much to both of you.
0: These researchers agree that multiple phenotypes exist and that they are important to clinical decision-making. And phenotypes developed for diagnostic purposes may be applicable to interventions as well. With psychological factors and comorbidities, there's more to knee osteoarthritis than the knee. Thanks for listening. This
1: has been a production of APTA.